Welcome to episode 27 of Game Dev with a Shot of Jameson. My name is Jameson Doral, and I'm a game designer with 20 years of experience that likes to help people learn more about the video games industry. Today I'm joined by Eric Yeo. He's a professional game designer with 31 years of experience. We cover the first half of his career, including the time we worked together at Oddworld, and we quickly realize we're going to need a future episode or two to cover the rest. Don't forget you can join the conversation live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern over at twitch.tv forward slash Jameson Doral. There's a link in the show notes if you want to come get your questions answered live next time. But for now, let's get this episode started. Man, I appreciate you doing this. It's been way too long since we've been able to just kind of sit down and catch up. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, it has been a long time. (laughs) Why don't we start... At the beginning, tell us a bit about Eric. Where did you grow up, and what did you think you were going to do when you when you got older? Uh, well, I grew up in Southern California, um, and for a long time, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I I loved games. I was um, I was into computers really early, like eight or nine, um, and I was fortunate. My parents were really supportive. And I got to go to like computer camp. And so like during the week I'd go to computer camp and then I play soccer on the weekends. And my parents were probably really worried that I had no idea what I was going to do or <laughs> what they were going to do with me. Cause like, Oh, all he does is play games. You know, how is he going to make a living? Um, but I was fortunate and I was able to turn it into something. Nice. So then you had a love of games from early on. Did you, did you think that's what you wanted to do or did you just love it and, and kind of hoped that it would turn into something or were you even thinking about it yet? Uh, I really wasn't. I mean, to me, it was all voodoo, right? So it was, you, I didn't understand. It's like there were games and I played them and they were fun. I didn't ever think about who makes them or how they make them or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so I was really just more of a, a connoisseur. And then I got into programming and I learned on apples and apple twos. Um, and then I just kept playing all the time. Nice. Odyssey, Atari, uh, Amigas on up through the ages. I saw somebody was asking if there was games back then. In the chat. <laughs> yeah, there, there were. I mean, we had to draw everything on our cave walls by torchlight, but but we had games. <laughs> yeah, it was a different time. <laughs> so, what kind of what uh, what did you do education wise? But like, did you go to a a school for programming, or like, what did you do like after high school? Well, after high school, um, I went to college briefly, uh, didn't enjoy it. So I was there for, uh, it was a psych major and a music minor and left after only about a year and I went to work and I was working at a Babbage's, which oh. was GameStop before GameStop was GameStop. Yeah. And that's actually coincidentally how I got into the industry. I, uh, the guys from Virgin, Virgin Mastertronic. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Oh, I do. <laughs> uh, they used to come in on lunch break to, to buy games. And I had a friend who went to work there and, and he's like, Hey, you want to come work on games? I'm like, sure. I like playing games. Maybe I like making them. And that's frighteningly all it took back then was just to know somebody and have a passion for it. Man, that is, that is so crazy. Like how different it is now. It almost takes a master's degree to get into it these days. And back then it was just, do you happen to know somebody you're kind of cool. Yeah. Like <laughs> it, it was literally like, Hey, you want to come do this? Man, sure, that's I awesome. Can, I think I can do that. So then what was it? Like, what was your, what was your first week like on the job? Uh, well, 
I went in initially to work on uh, sports titles for console because I don't think anybody else wanted to do it. And I was an associate producer. And um, <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. So what kind of happened was they would put me in and say, okay, you need to make sure the games are kind of on time and the communication is working and um, uh, we're staying on budget. And I spent most of my time working with the dev team doing the exact opposite of that, which was, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we added this, that, and, <laughs> and so they're like, okay, you're a terrible producer, but you might be a good designer. So I kind of switched tracks at that point. How, like how long was that? Was that like the first couple of months or did you kind of do it for uh, a while? It was a little while. I shipped a couple of games, a okay. couple of early NES things um, as a producer um boxing a muhammad ali boxing game hockey game golf game caesar's palace um a very obscure game called overlord on the nes a sort of a space colonization mm. strategy game yeah so i have your some of your titles scrolling underneath your name here and i couldn't fit them all so i just kind of <laughs> picked about half of them to fit on there because you 31 years man that is that is an incredible amount of time to be designing video games. Yeah, I'm pretty old. <laughs> I feel that part for sure. <laughs> so, so then you move over to you ship a couple things, then you move over into design. And what what was that transition like for you? Uh, it was pretty seamless. I mean, back then the teams weren't huge, and you know, you kind of everybody was a bit of a jack of all trades anyway. So mm. I think a lot of us were generalists anyhow. Um, and it was just more fun for me. Like I liked thinking about what can we do? What else can we, where else can we go? What else can we let players do? Um, which is what made me such a terrible producer. <laughs> so it was pretty seamless for me anyway. Okay. And what was the, uh, what was the first thing that you designed or, or worked on as a designer? Do you remember? Wow. I'm not sure. Cause back then they would also stack games on you. So I was working on, um, a seven up spot game. I don't know if everybody remembers. I remember that. Spot. Yeah. And Terminator for the Sega CD, I think pretty much at the same time. Um, so I'm not sure which one of those came out first. Okay. And so how long were you there? How long did you work on games at that company? Uh, long enough for it to become just Virgin game when it used to be Mastertronic. And it was kind of a weird transition. I, um, so we had acquired Westwood Studios, mm. and this was right around the time of Dune 2. And um, they didn't have any full-time designers, right? They were always designed by committee because everybody there was, you know, super brilliant. And a friend of mine and I named Seth, we were on loan to Westwood to help work on Lion King because they really wanted to do a console game. They were primarily a PC house. So we were flying back and forth between Orange County and uh, Las Vegas every week. For <laughs> Wow. Going on a year. Um, and I was fairly unhappy at Virgin. Uh, so I just, I mentioned I was thinking of leaving and Lewis Castle, who was one of the founders of Westwood said, come here, you know, we all get along. And I loved everybody there and was super excited about it. So I said, absolutely. And when we finished Lion King, Disney was super happy and they wanted an Aladdin too. They wanted a follow up to the Genesis Aladdin. So we started work on that. And then there was a big disagreement about who was going to publish it. And so that never came to fruition. So I ended up going on to, they were start spinning up the, the 
not the sequel, but sort of another Dune strategy game, but it wasn't in the Dune universe. This was Command and Conquer. But back then, this was before it became Command and Conquer. It was called Fortresses of Stone. Oh. And uh, that was my first PC title. So that was kind of fun and scary all at the same time. So your first PC title was Command and Conquer. Yeah. (laughs) Right into the deep end. Yeah, something, you know, a little known game, you know, that... (laughs) Yeah, a few people played it. Yeah. So that that was my introduction to RTS in general. So like that was uh or actually wait, what came out first, that or Dune two thousand? Uh, uh, Command Conquer, then Red Alert, and then Dune two thousand was developed by a UK developer, and I'm going to forget their name now. So we were helping with the design of that and transitioning the original game into okay. you know the update. Yeah. Yeah, so then it was definitely Command and Conquer, and then but Dune two thousand was the first game I played a ton. Like I played that game a lot. It was pretty cool. Yeah, but anyway, so we're you're you're on Command and Conquer. What like what was your your role, and how many designers were on that team, roughly? Um, like titled designers. Initially, it was just me, and then we hired on three more. Um, but you know, like I said, Westwood was full of smart people that all contributed. Um, it was probably some of my happiest years in, in yeah. game development. Well, that's good. Um, because I, I, I could go talk to the the engineers and be like, okay, here's what I, I think in and what we want to do. And they're like, yeah, that sounds really cool, but we could add this. And just so much synergy and so much coolness. And it was very cool. That's a great vibe. And that when everybody, we're, how many times do we, as a designer, be like, here's the thing I want to do. And most of what we get back is pushback, you know, and like, yeah. well, it's going to cost too much or you know, we can't really do that. So those times when everybody's really on the same page, those are special for sure. It really is. And that was, like I said, one of the few times where you, I would walk in and talk to the engineers and not only would they get it, but when I got the feature or the tool or whatever back, it was like 90% right. Like it worked the way I was expecting. That's awesome. How, how big was the team overall? Um, at its height, uh, 30-ish. That's a pretty big yeah, team then. <laughs> Back then, yeah, that was huge. I mean, that was most of the company, but there were two different groups. There was sort of Brett Sperry's group, which I transitioned onto, which was Command and Conquer and all the strategy-related stuff. And then there was Lewis Castle's group, which was like Lands of Lore and Blade Runner, which I helped on Blade Runner as well. I did the just the initial design work. I didn't do all the heavy lifting. Um, that was other people. But um, yeah, so anyway, two different groups, but that was most of the company was was command and conquer and ports thereof and add-ons like covert ops and all that stuff yeah yeah in the chat they're saying yeah that's an indie studio size now right and back then that was yeah. that was a big team <laughs> interesting back then, that was monsters yeah well at odd world we only had like 24 people in true or 27 i guess with the cinematic guys in in real production that was yeah. that was a that was a small team you know when we did it so it was already starting to feel like a small team considering how big that game was, that yeah. was I'm not sure how we got that out. Yeah. Uh, we, we'll have a lot to cover there. I'm sure. <laughs> so, all right. So you do command and conquer. Then I assume there was a few expansions to that that were worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then next was red alert. Right. And right. was that around the time that EA bought them? If I remember right. No, that was, that was Tiberian sun. Okay. Tiberian um, sun. Yeah, Red Alert was, so I was working on Tiberian Sun, and another designer was working on Red Alert, and then I came on to help out with Red Alert, mm. and um, so there, there was, both were going on at the same time, but we put Tiberian Sun on hold, 
originally Red Alert was a uh, it was a, supposed to be an expansion pack mm-hmm. for the anniversary of World War II. Oh. And true to designer form, we just kept adding stuff and adding stuff, and nobody was reining us in because um, Command and Conquer had been a success. So it kind of just became its own product after uh, a while. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, if you can put it out as its own thing and sell it, it seems like something people would want you to do. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, uh, and best I remember, all of those games and expansions did very well, right? They did, yeah. yeah. They were bigger in Europe almost. Oh, really? Than North, than North America. Yeah, we had a bigger audience, a bigger following. They, Especially in Germany, they love their strategy games. Hmm. Wasn't there a Nintendo port of Command and Conquer? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, there was an N sixty four version, and this was one of my proudest and hardest moments <laughs> of my my career. So, obviously, Shigeru Miyamoto is one of my idols. Idolized the guy, and at that yeah. time, we he had to approve games that were being put on the N sixty four. So I had to at a convention pitch to him Command and Conquer on the N64. And I thought it was a terrible idea because I was struggling with how am I going to make this work on the controller? (laughs) And, um, you know, he listened and, you know, his English was okay. Um, There was still an interpreter. And after he listened to it all, he's like, this is a terrible idea. (laughs) I'm like, I know, I know. But anyway, (laughs) they ended up doing it. Uh, Wow. Okay. So you didn't believe in it. He didn't believe in it, but it happened anyway. (laughs) so so what why did it still happen like what kind of what was the gear that that got going at some point like rts on console became this mythical beast that everybody just wanted Mm. to have happen so it's like well we're gonna try and you know we weren't we hadn't gotten big into 3d or anything and we were gonna try all those things at once we were gonna take a crap ton of risk wow Um, and it wasn't awful but it wasn't great either. Like I think the this the PlayStation versions and the Saturn versions were were better. Okay, interesting. So how how many years overall were you at Westwood? Uh, about six. Six. Six and a half ish. Which you know my my longest tenure at a at a company is eight years. So you're you're pretty early in your career and you're already hitting six at one. So that's that's pretty impressive. Now at that time. There wasn't a whole lot of movement in the industry, right? Like you tended to kind of stay somewhere a little longer, right? Yeah, it was very, um, very different than now. I mean, back then it was it was about the company, right? You built a company that mm-hmm. made games, and if something tanked, it, everybody didn't get laid off or anything like that. It's sort of like you regrouped and said, okay, what do we what do we learn, and you try something else. Yeah. Um, so you know, not everything that we designed always came out. Um, so yeah, you you stayed. I mean, it was you built a company rather than a product. Now it's very product centric, but back then it was company centric. Yeah, that's true. So what um do you have an example of uh of something there that you that you built that didn't pan out the way you hoped? Um, I think there was a it wasn't really an expansion or an add-on. It was sort of this secondary game called Cobra, no, not Cobra Ops, uh, Soul Survivor that was built on the Command & Conquer engine that was just a multiplayer game mm. where you sort of were a individual unit type and on a map with, I don't know, 16 other people or something like that, or 32. I can't remember how many people could play at once. Um, and you just fought. And that was it, it didn't have a ton of depth. And I think it may have sprung out as an idea, and I may be misremembering this because 
uh, it was a long time ago. <laughs> but we had a bug at one point in Command and Conquer where um, we, in our tools, we could say, okay, these units are the only ones that are available at this time. So we were trying out different combinations. And there was a bug where you could only have helicopters and infantry. And that bug stuck around for a couple of days, but it was actually really, really fun in multiplayer. Oh. Um, because there were different infantry types that were good against helicopters and certain uh, helicopters that were good against vehicles. But just those two as a combination was actually kind of interesting. So then we're like, okay, well, let's see if we can expand on that. But it didn't didn't take off, didn't feel very good. We shipped it, but didn't do great. Oh, okay, interesting. All right. So, so you we've we've talked through Command and Conquer and Red Alert. What about Tiberian Tiberian Sun? Right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So what was what was that? You said because you said you were working on that, then you went back to help on Red Alert a bit. So now you're back to Tiberian Sun, right? Mm-hmm. And what was what was that one like? That was a huge undertaking. I think um, we were starting to take ourselves pretty seriously at that point. Like Command and Conquer had a really cheesy charm to it hmm. because we just did not know what we were doing i mean some people did. I, i'm not <laughs> i didn't know what i was doing um but like so as an example right on, on command and conquer we had a mix of video and cg backgrounds mm-hmm. and so commander shepherd who was giving you your your um, mission briefings sometimes these things would happen and there'd be like a red light flashing on him. It was literally a dude under the desk with a red gel light and a flashlight turning it on and off <laughs> to simulate the, the light going. That was Command and Conquer. Tiberian Sun was, we had James Earl Jones and Michael Bean and we shot out in the desert with oh, you know, wow. suits and all, all kinds of stuff. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't bad at all, but I, I think we, we took a really big bite uh, maybe too big of a bite. That's a that's and, a big uh, change. Yeah. Yeah, and I think some people may have missed the the, the cheesy charm of Command and Conquer. Oh. So how much were you involved? Like, were you out in the desert filming? Like, like was it like because you probably didn't have like a cinematics team yet or anything like that, right? No, we did. We, oh, we did. were early on with cinematics. We had one of the biggest rendering farms, like in the western u.s or western hemisphere or something crazy like that like literally custom made and cooled and all this stuff so it was pretty out of control um like at night you had to put your machine into slave mode so that it could take on all the rendering jobs <laughs> and things like that. what so, what yeah, year we were, what year are we talking sorry no, roughly no, um like the uh, late 90s okay so yeah i mean origin kind of really did a lot of really cool stuff with with 3d rendering and cinematics and we were doing some pretty cool stuff uh blizzard started coming out the early stuff they were so funny blizzard went from like their warcraft stuff and I, hopefully nobody from blizzard is watching this their early stuff was terrible yeah. and then they made this change and suddenly their stuff was just brilliant and they have some of the best cinematics in the industry hmm. um but yeah we were messing with Lightwave and all sorts of fun things 3d studio um just to to mix all the medias together Okay. Uh, but yeah, no, we were out in the desert. We were all working on the script, um, uh, working with James Earl Jones. He was only there for a day, but it was still really cool to meet him. Um, Michael Bean, nice guy. Spent time with him sitting in the trailer talking about his character, what his character was going to be doing, why it was important. Nice. Um, like an actual movie set. That's really cool. Man, I don't have many of those experiences in game dev. Like my stuff was always pretty much game focused. So that's, or, you know, like 
game creation focused. I didn't do much in the way of like working with talent and that kind of stuff and cinematics or anything like that. So that's always fascinating to me. That's okay. Focus is good. Yeah. All right. So, all right. You're, so what was, what was the development of that game like? Like you see, it's a big undertaking. You've now got like, uh, real actors and it's a big production. So how did you kind of like weave all that together? Uh, we had a big team. There was a lot of people we brought in that were more specialists in those sorts of things. So um, for me and producer and some of the others that were sort of spanning all the different groups, um, it was a pretty big undertaking, like dealing with the script, dealing with actors, then dealing with the engine. Um, I was pushing very hard. I wanted to go full 3D, but there were some concerns because 3D cards were still really new. I think it was just about the time the 3D effects had come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people were doing some cool things with it, but there was concern that it, it wasn't ubiquitous enough and we would hurt sales. So we kind of struck a compromise and we used uh, voxels. Oh. remember the voxels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we still had a tile-based map, but we had some super rudimentary knowledge of what the slopes and things looked like. So it, everything was either flat or a 45 degree angle. Mm-hmm. So you had these 45 degree slopes and we used the voxels for the units so they could go up slopes and, and do all these things. So the voxel engine would render the units out as facing sprites as needed and then sort of cache all those animations, oh. all, like all the different facings and everything. So okay. that was also a big undertaking. Again, taking on way too much risk all at once, but I mean, that's what you did back then. Yeah, I mean, you had to kind of innovate, right? And that was kind of the the time of innovation too. Is like you're talking about 3D cards. That at that time, the the 3D card was a, an add-in card too, right? Like you had two cards in there for that. And because I remember, because I got that 3D FX card early that came with Turok, and yeah. like that was like like life changing as far as like visuals for me. But yeah. man, yeah, that's a that's a big big difference. That's a whole new way to think about development. So that's that's a big undertaking. It really was, and, and you're right. Like during that time, like during the '90s, you know, we had like modems became a thing. So multiplay, uh, hard drives, CDs. Um, God, what else changed us? Sound cards. Sound cards. Yeah, yeah. Like we went from just crappy <laughs> little speaker to ad lib yep. and sound blaster, and which was another fun thing we we wrestled with on Command and Conquer. I came from again a console background. And so this, the whole notion of setting addresses and IRQs and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff was just mind-bogglingly dumb to me. <laughs> um, so I really I wanted something different for Command & Conquer because the story that had been written was you were just some schmo who picked up this what you thought was a game, but it was actually a military-grade personal assistant. Oh. And so they didn't know you weren't like this amazing general. They just thought you were this, this important person, but you had this EVA unit. So I wanted that to be uh, a part of the, the the feeling of the game really, really early. And um, one of our engineers, Maria, she spent so much time and made this really cool uh, install program that as soon as you entered just a basic bits of information, it would start playing sound and animations and things like that. And the EVA would kind of look like it took over your computer and link you into all the news feeds around the world mm. and like tell you where you needed to be. Cause there's all these military fights and hotspots going on. And um, I really liked that. And I wanted something that was, it got you in the game right away rather than fiddling with all these, you know, like I said, I, addresses and IRQs for sound blaster. And- yeah, man. I, 
<laughs> it was such a a crazy time, like the '90s, as far as games go. And that was the thing that for me was really exciting, and the thing that really pushed me toward wanting to do it overall. Like, was I was constantly building machines, upgrading components, trying to get more RAM, adjusting my the memory in my system. Like all that stuff was fun, but it was all to play the next game. That was the yeah. whole purpose. And it was just such a great time. Like no one's going to experience that again. Like everything's plug and play now. It is. But yeah, you, you remember that joy of eking out just a little more of that 640K <laughs> yep. memory to play the next Origin game, right? Mm-hmm. That was... Absolutely. It was fun, but it was a nightmare. Yeah, it was... Uh, <laughs> and there was no... Like, I couldn't go online and look up, like, the right way to to configure my memory for this. It was, okay, does this work? No. Okay. How does this work? Yes! Like, they loaded. Okay. Is it going to run through the whole game? I don't know. It's Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that fun? It's like, okay, I'm going to move this thing out of core memory and put it up into extended memory. And, oh, my machine, machine's on fire. Okay. Right, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that was that was the life, but that was what we did to, to have fun back then. Yeah. And talking about the modems and internet stuff, like this had to have been kind of a key for for you know games like Command and Conquer, having online play had to be a, kind of a key motivating factor there for a while. Oh yeah, it was critical. I mean, we we after Doom Two, it was necessary. We wanted to have multiplayer battles, um, so that opened up a whole nother thing. Like okay not just the technology of connecting people and keeping them connected and dealing with all of that, but how do we balance it? Like mm. there weren't a lot of games, strategy games or anything like that, where we could say, Oh, this is how you would set up a two player map versus a four player map and where you put people. And so we were experimenting with all those things all at the same time, building the technology, understanding the technology, understanding the design of like, Oh, well, you don't have to make everything symmetrical. You can do asymmetric maps, but you have to have give and take in each mm. section. So mm -hmm. it's like this person is going to have access to tons of resources, right? Like their their base is just full of Tiberium. So they're going to have lots of money, but we're not going to give them lots of like natural cover. There's not going to be a lot of cliff lines that can protect their base. This person down here, not much money to start, but they've got a really solid uh, set of cliffs and only one access point to their base. So they're pretty secure. They don't have to spend a ton of money on guard towers and, and things like that. They could spend all their money on units to send out and attack. That's a, that was fun. That's a great kind of quick insight into balance, right? Like, and, and, and balance design because, you know, a lot of people don't think about, you know, making something symmetrical is the easiest way to make it fair. Right. Like, and, and we cut and it's best to start from there, you know, cause like, let me just duplicate this map, flip it over. We like how it works. We like kind of the, what we've built into this as far as what each player is capable of doing on a base level. And then now let's take it. And like, you're talking about where do we make changes? So we make it unique and interesting and accommodate play styles or different factions and things like that. Like that all is, it's difficult to do overall, right? Like to do it on a broad scale balance, but the individual moves kind of give you a way to think about like if you assign costs to things right you know and like think about the the kind of the quick changes you can make to to give a penalty but also you know a, a benefit to it so that it still ends up balancing out at the end yeah and i i created not knowingly at the time but i created a crap ton of work for myself because when i was looking at command and conquer i'm like i want the sides to be asymmetrical i don't want the same units on the same side i mean there'd be some overlap 
but I'm like, this is going to be really fun and much better because there was this whole ethos behind them too. Like the Brotherhood of Nod were, they were the good guys, depending on where you came from, or the bad guys, depending on where you came from. So we didn't, weren't trying to say the Brotherhood was good or bad, or the GDI was good or bad. It's just all dependent on your perspective. Mm. Um, so I wanted them to be balanced, but totally different and feed into their ethos. So the Brotherhood was not a nation or uh, a military, so they weren't going to follow the Geneva Convention. So it was cool for them to have flame tanks and chemical weapons and all these sorts of things, but not for the GDI, who were supposed to be more like the UN mm. uh, and and not you know kill civilians and do all that fun stuff. So they needed to be very different from each other. And so I made that decision, and then as it went on, balancing became just a nightmare because they, they were not symmetric at all. Yeah. <laughs> did you, how did you go about that? Did you create some kind of like a point system for things or did it just kind of happen no. through iteration and trying stuff? Uh, what I broke it down to was basically time and cost to produce should be balanced. So um, an example, uh, so let's say five mini gunners should be, if five mini gunners cost the same as, a, as one Humvee, it should take about the same amount of time to produce those mm. uh, five mini gunners and as the Humvee and cost about the same. And in a direct fight, uh, it should be really close. Like little variables might cause the mini gunners to win or the Humvee to win on a different set of circumstances. So that was how I balanced it is I would just pit different groups against each other and adjust their cost and time to produce damage armor. But then we also had a lot of other variables like what is the, what is their weapon? How fast does it fire? Um, what is the armor type it's hitting? Uh, there was a whole lot of variables. So I, the high level was the easiest way to look at it. It's like, okay, it costs this much and takes this long. So a unit of equal value should take, they should be able to have a, a fair fight and almost always be near death on each side. Okay. Now, did you, what, what did you have in the realm of QA? If it's to help you figure this out, or was this kind of like all you for the most part? Um, well, fortunately, the game was fun early on. Uh, so we had a QA department that was really good, but this, we, we weren't good back then about involving QA early mm. like we are now. And like now I insist, like you have to have QA involved in design from the start. Mm -hmm. Um, they need to know the game inside and out. You need to help them make QA test plans based on what you're designing. Um, but we had a very good QA department, but the game was fun enough that people would stay after hours and play. And I nice. could just ghost around the, the, the building and watch people play, just, you know, lurk over their shoulders and watch. That's awesome. Like that's, uh, you don't really get that very often. You get it near the end, right? Usually, you know, when it's like, okay, the game's, you know, pretty much done. We're kind of moving toward a beta or an alpha. <laughs> nice, nice uh, the ninja cat appearance. Yeah, this is Simon. <laughs> He's a jerk. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's that's really nice. The early and and that's kind of my philosophy is the earlier you can get something playable, the earlier you can start getting feedback, right? And and yeah. and it's hard to hear early. Man, is it hard to hear? But and and there's a lot of like you talked about making sure people understand the vision where it's going what the current state of it actually is and that some of these problems aren't problems yet. You know, they're, 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 you know, they're things that we understand that will be fixed, but still like you, you got to take all that stuff in and then you know get everybody's feedback and, and not get your feelings hurt while you yeah. think about what's, what's, what do I do next? You know, the thick skin is super important. Um, 
the the one big positive about all of that is I knew everybody there and I knew their personalities and there was a good chance that I watched them play at some point. So if somebody came to me and said, dude, orcas are so OP, like you, you got to bring them down. Um, and they're super vocal. It's like, okay, I know this guy, you know, he's really adamant and super, like he's super sure of his, his opinions. Um, and I watched him lose to Orcas last night. So maybe it's not so bad as he thinks because he's just upset that he got yeah. his base blown up by somebody with a whole fleet of Orcas. You know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if you know this, but you actually were someone that really impressed me early in my career as far as thick skin goes. Because you, like, at our time in Oddworld, we, we dealt with a, a lot of high-pressure, tense situations there at the end of, yeah. of Stranger's Wrath. And you were always someone that was very much like, give me the information. I'm going to take it. I'm not going to... You you didn't have any kind of, like, emotional outbursts. You didn't have... Like, you were very much like, let me absorb. Let me contemplate. Now let's let's do this, you know? Or, or, or now let's talk about that. And early in my career, I was much more emotional than that. And I was always like, I was always impressed by that. And, and I use that as a way to be like, that's how I need to take this. I'm going to figure out how to do that. And so like, that was uh, something I definitely learned a lot from you about. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the compliment. It was, it's a, uh, it was always a personality trait. So I think I was fortunate that I just brought it into, to game design. Mm -hmm. Um, it drives my wife crazy because my emotional level is, is just flatline all the time. So there's no, there's no highs, but there's also no lows. So it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, no, I can understand that. <laughs> like, let's see, now they're, in the, they're saying in the chat that I'm emotional, wondering about it. Like, Richie's worked with me, though, so he, uh, <laughs> he's probably seen me get a little emotional. <laughs> it's tough when it's, it's your stuff, right? Like, it's, it's your baby. Yeah. And it's like sending your kid off to school for the first time. It's like, are the other kids going to be nice to him? And, um, it's tough when to hear that your idea sucks or it didn't work or yeah. cats are out of control. <laughs> yeah. And uh, talking about emotional intelligence in the chat, like it's, it's definitely learned, right? You have to be cognizant of it and make sure that you're, you know, understanding of, of, of the different variables and how you're reacting to it, but also like paying attention to how what you say is affecting others and, you know, knowing how to communicate with others effectively. So there, there's a lot to that. And us as designers, most of what we do is interact with others and hope that they get on board with the things that we want and integrate the things that they want. Yeah. And it's, it's super critical now. I mean, you, you deal with, um, if everybody's familiar with pens and how they use that to grade the fun in games, it was a way to, to sort of um, scientifically break down fun. And with data, people can can sort of fudge data in any direction that they want. Yeah. So people have a, a tendency to bias data in to get the outcomes that they want. Um, so it's a particular skill to just take the pure data and have pure reaction to it rather than, I believe this, therefore I'm going to make sure that the data kind of represents what yeah. I, my, my previous bias. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, people that can do that, it's a, it's a great skill to have. Yeah. And it's, it's not easy. <laughs> definitely not easy. <laughs> no, like that's your baby, right? Yeah. You, you want to be right and you want it to be cool. 
Yeah. It, it, it feels personal. Yeah. Right. Like it, uh, oh, there it is. <laughs> chat said, I bet the cat comes up one more time. <laughs> Just so you know, the cat's not bothering anyone at all. So don't feel like okay. you, you got to move it out of the way. <laughs> well, I'm worried he's going to disconnect me or type something vulgar. Because like I said, he is a jerk. <laughs> That's awesome. So what, uh, back to Westwood was, what, what was next as you finished up uh, Tiberian Sun? What, how did that, how did that do? Did that do well? It did well. Um, I had, I left right at the end. Oh, okay. So um, this is where it gets a little touchy. I got to be careful. Uh, so EA was we were looking to sell Westwood. So mm -hmm. Virgin had kind of collapsed and we were actually handling a lot of the Virgin titles, especially in Europe, not handling per se, but like helping yeah. advise. Yeah. Is the best term. Okay. And it was taking a toll. And I think, um, so the, the powers that be wanted to sell Westwood again. And so we were being courted by some, by various groups and EA was in the, the lead and, um, I, I worked at EA, so I'm, I'm not trying to badmouth them or anything. And I have some good friends there. Um, at the time, EA didn't have the best reputation with developers mm -hmm. um, being bought out and what happened. So it wasn't where I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and I, I made that known. I said, if, if we go this route, I'm going to leave. Well, and um, to add one thing real quick, I, I, the, the problem that I saw at that time, and, and I hope this kind of covers a bit of it, was... EA was focused on getting an IP. They had not yet learned that the people and the IP are what make the game. Like that was what I saw. I was like, let us take the IP and then we're going to do something with it. And I saw a lot of failure in that area. That was at least my impression. What I saw a lot of that around that time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's all tribal knowledge, right? You lose the people that created it. It's not going to be the same, right? They may do something great with it, but the chances are slim. Yeah. Yeah, and so that that totally makes sense why you would be concerned, right? Like, there's a very good chance that you may move over and then not even have a job very shortly after that. Yeah, because I, I I watched a lot of friends at companies like Bullfrog and Origin mm -hmm. kind of just even though they weren't doing anything wrong, they got phased out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, so I I I left and with some other people from Westwood and Activision, and we formed our own studio. Oh, you did. Okay, so which studio I, was this? That was Seven Studios. Okay. Um, and my cat is literally trying to scratch my face on the screen. <laughs> Dude, it's not me. I that swear. is funny. He's like, what? What voodoo? What is this magic? I just saw a couple little ears and then the screen shake a little bit like that. Well, I think he thinks I was like in that weird uh, prism thing, mirror thing from Superman, right? Like I was stuck in it because he was trying to get me out. Oh um, man. Yeah, so we 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 left and formed Seven Studios. Where was uh, was this still in Vegas area? No, well we were in Vegas, but we we put our studio in uh, Santa Monica, California. Okay. Um and it it's unfair to call it a failure cuz I learned a lot. Um but the first game that came out was called Legion, the Legend of Excalibur. So we went down this route. The, the premise to all this was I was kind of coming off of Command and Conquer, and we thought, okay, now's a good time to strike, right? Like, mm -hmm. let's go out, ask for lots of money. This was still the time shortly after Romero had, you know, his company and got all this money and everything. So it was still a time where you could go out and ask publishers for money based on your reputation. 
Right. And we were coming out saying, hey, we've got the lead designer of Command & Conquer series, um, and we're going to make an RTS on console. And again, that's that mythical nut. Oh, that man. <laughs> Now, and how did you feel yeah. about it this time? Did you, were you con- like, you were behind it? Yeah, I was more behind it because controllers had evolved even further, even more buttons, more opportunities, more power. What console and, are we talking about now? Uh, PlayStation 2. Okay. So, and we, we were talking to different publishers and Sony was one of them. And literally the president of Sony US was like, look, if you can figure this out, you can write your own check. Oh. We're like, okay, we're doing that. We yeah. want to write our own checks. <laughs> we, like we, like, we like writing checks. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I, there was a bunch of mistakes that we made. Again, wait, I've, I've learned to be more risk averse, but we took on a ton of risk, like new company, new team, new technology, new console, new concept. Um, yeah, everything about it was new, and that was dumb on my part. Um, that is a lot of new. My yeah. one of my most failed projects had three new things, and it was a like it was a big problem. This one's even worse. Like that's that's a lot. Yeah. Oh, and we we compounded it by being a small startup, and so <laughs> the engineers who should have been spending their time being engineers were troubleshooting, setting up artists' computers, and oh man, you know, just keeping us running and keeping the lights on. Um, so mistakes were made. Um, <laughs> And I severely over-designed the game. I think that was my my biggest fault in all of that was there was this expectation. So I'm like, I'm going to design this gigantic, you know, console RTS, and you're going to have heroes like Arthur and Guinevere, Percival, um, and you're going to be able to lead them around, and they're going to have followers, and you're going to be able to build them and attack castles and do all this stuff. And the engineers are like, sure, no problem. How big of maps do you want? I'm like, I need like two kilometers by two kilometers, and I need hundreds of units on the side. And they're like, great, no problem. And as time went on, it, it turned out it was a problem. And it went from like, you can have two kilometer by two kilometer, but maybe one kilometer by one kilometer, and not hundreds of units, but tens of units. <laughs> and then it got smaller and smaller. And I kept holding on to this notion of this design, this grand design that I had. And, um, it turned into more of a a tactical hack and slash. Like if you were to give, if you were to play Diablo and have multiple heroes, like four heroes that you could give orders to, and they had followers, and you could you could run them around with the sticks and literally heavy attack, light attack, and then switch to Guinevere and have her guard Arthur. Um, it turned into something that was moderately interesting but if i had if i had made that switch like a year earlier and focused on just paring it way down to that core mm-hmm. it probably would have been pretty good um but it ended up being uh overthought and overdesigned okay um but we had gotten some money from midway to do that and we had we had issues you know dealing with publishers like you always do you know they were they were wanting to have a lot of advertisements and screenshots and things like that. So they were asking us to do dynamic lighting before we even had pathfinding and things like that, <laughs> um, which I fought against very hard. And then I stopped getting invited to meetings. Uh, that sounds like about me. right. Well, I didn't, I didn't want to do it. I'm like, this is going to kill our game. You know, if we spend all of our time on the, on the pretties, there won't be any function. Yeah. Um, and the game was already going down a bad path in terms of we just weren't able to, to hit the design that I had built um, through no fault of the engineers. I mean, we just overestimated what we thought the PlayStation could do and what we could do. 
Um, so yeah, it, it, it slowly that company morphed into one that was just doing like licensed movie titles, which was not what I wanted to do. Um, we was first did a Legion game. Was there a Fantastic did... Four game in there? My... Oh, what? Was there a Fantastic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, then there was Fantastic Four, and we did a Defender remake. Okay. Um, that was kind of interesting. But, yeah, it was, like I said, mistakes were made. And it went down a path that I wasn't interested in. Sorry, the cat's just going to have to be on me. Oh, you're fine, man. You're totally fine. <laughs> um, so, well, but when you say mistakes were made, were were they really mistakes? Like, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes we have to, like, we have to innovate, right? We have to, mm-hmm. it, we would never make something better if we didn't try, you know? So is it just that it, it didn't pan out? So like, is that is that what you mean by that? Like, it didn't end up being what you'd hoped? It, yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm being like extra harsh, but it's 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 a lesson I want people to take away, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, manage your risks. So mistakes were made in the sense that in when you're creating a business, you want to mitigate risk, right? Especially out of the gate. Like now, if I were to start a studio, I would start very small. Like mm. I wouldn't be trying to knock it out of the park with the first game. You know, I'd, I'd be able to build something very simple that I could control and, you know, build up our technology, build, build up our team dynamic, all that stuff first. So mistakes were more of, you know, I should have been mitigating that risk rather than trying to hit the ball out of the park because my ego said that I had to. Wow. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Now that that's a, that's a really good point. It's uh, it, your, your eyes are bigger than your stomach in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that totally makes sense. And that, sorry, no, I was just gonna say that's, that's something that, that a lot of design students that I've had, that's one of the biggest things I try to, to impart to them is, start small with your design because they'll make giant spaces and try to fill it with content. And I'm like, you don't need to do that. Like, just like, what's the content first? What's the experience? And then build around it. And it's just, it seems like that kind of scales to to every part of design in a lot of ways. Yeah. If you, if you can build your core and make it great, then you can expand. Yeah. Oh, that's actually Um, something I wanted to ask you about. So you're doing this, um, this new RTS, right? With the the first thing you're doing with this company was the controls. The first thing you focused on, like, did you have kind of a, a playable demo like quickly of, of like a functionality with a controller? Yeah, we were able to switch between characters and have followers for each hero. Um, and they were all very disparate. Like Arthur was a heavy swordsman. Guinevere was an archer and she had archers with her. Um, so we had that functioning and you could jump back and forth between it, but it was too frenetic. So I spent a lot of time trying to come up with control schemes that uh, allowed you to be more of a strategist because we were losing a lot of the the strategy elements of the game Uh. Um, because you couldn't see the whole map all the time. And the the mini map was just not, there was not enough information to make informed decisions about what was happening on the other side of the map. Oh, Um, okay. Yeah. So okay. that was a little problematic. And I ended up with a control scheme that was um, the, the core of it, as I recall, is I, you couldn't really feel like you were in control because you were constantly having to babysit all the units. So you were jumping back and forth between all of the heroes all the time. 
okay. um, because they had to be watched and given orders. So I'm like, okay, how do I slow this down? And what I ended up coming up with was a more passive order system, which was you could issue commands like you were creating a, a verbal sentence or a, a verbal order. So you would select Guinevere and then target Arthur, and that would tell her to guard Arthur. Okay. And until you gave her a contrary command, she would follow Arthur wherever he went, and anything that attacked Arthur, she would shoot. Anything that got close to him, she would shoot. And you could do that contextually by saying, I want you to guard this person. I want you to guard this area. I want you to follow this, attack that. Um, and that worked better because then you could issue standing orders and then go do something else and not come back to just a bunch of dead heroes. Interesting. Okay. So how long, how long did seven studios, how long were you there? Cause I think you left before, before it, you know, did anything you, you left before the end, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, I'm sorry, just a couple of years, uh, until the business partner, he was, you know, it was his job to, to develop the business. So he was getting what he could, which was movie licenses that we had to knock out in like 12 months, 13 months, which back then was nuts. Um, and it's just not what I wanted to do. Okay. So I ended up going to Oddworld, which is where we met. Yeah. And so you went to Oddworld, what, like 2004? Or, or... Yeah, 2003. Yeah, right around. I, I think I got there early 05. Or maybe it was, no, actually I got there in 04. So you might have been there in 03. Mm-hmm. It's, all, it's all blur at this point. But, yeah, it was ancient history. <laughs> but so I uh so so tell me about what your time there was like. What um what what enticed you to and, and how did it come about that you you know ended up there? Um yeah, I don't remember because you know, back then headhunters were a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um so you if you if you'd had a studio or made some games that were were half decent, you know you had headhunters calling you every couple of weeks anyway, saying, "Hey, I've got this other studio that would be really interested in you." Um, and it just happened at the time I was looking, and uh, I thought the other Oddworld games had been really cool. Down you go. Oh, he stole a key. You little shit. What kind of key? Uh, one of my keyboard keys. You oh no. <laughs> I hope you didn't eat it. <laughs> That's going to be painful later if he ate it. it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, did I lose you? Oh, no, I lost him. Oops, I lost my connection. That's <laughs> Cats are great for that. Oh, I don't have um, I don't have video. I'm trying to figure out what he hit. <laughs> oh, I think you're coming back. There you are. That is awesome. <laughs> I warned you, and you guys are like, "No, he's fine." Yeah, I love I it. I, hey, so I think it's great. <laughs> so many meetings this last year. I was I was at Microsoft doing some contract work, and they, he was screwing up meetings every day. Um. <laughs> Uh, where was I? Oddworld, and how oh, you got Oddworld. there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Headhunters were just, they were looking for people, and, and Oddworld had some cool games, and they were doing um, original stuff, which is really where I wanted to be. I didn't want to be doing licensed products. Um, 
So I went up there and met Lauren and, and really dug it. And it was a small studio and it, it harkens back to Westwood, you know, mm. when we were like 40 people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm like, this is, this is, this is the feel, this is the, the vibe I want. Um, so I ended up taking that, I sold my house and moved to San Luis Obispo. Yeah. That, I agree with you. That was the big thing when I, when I visited Oddworld the first time it, you know, the lights were low it was not not dark, but you know it had it had, a, had a cozy feel. There was artwork everywhere, and like just it it had it it felt like I always imagined a game studio would feel like, and mm. and that was like it was super super cool. I really enjoyed just kind of the vibe overall when I was there for my initial interview for sure. Yeah, it, it spoke to my inner troglodyte, right? Like the like you said, the low lights and cave like existence. And yeah. It was like home. Yeah, it was. It felt good there for sure. Uh, and San Luis Obispo was a great little town. Like I don't, a lot of people don't know this. It's a, but it was a couple of hours south of the bay, something like that. Um, it's in mm-hmm. between LA and San Francisco, and yeah. it, um, it, there was like no, like the downtown area. What was where we were was they did not allow chain anything. Everything was like you know, uh, entrepreneur or local business. So you had to go like outside of town to get anything like a Best Buy or anything like that, which was neat. Like it was cool that it had that vibe. Yes. Sleepy little college town. Yeah. And there, there was that, what was the name of that place? Um, there was a, like a brew house down there that I never can remember the name of now. Uh, they, and tri-tip was super popular there and I ate it all the time. Was this the, the upstairs one? Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I never can remember the name of it now. It yeah, I can't either. Wasn't Firehouse? I have to. I have to look it up sometime. I'm pretty sure it was directly responsible for at least 20 extra pounds. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Firestone was that it? That sounds right. Yeah, Firestone Grill. Yep, that's it. That's it. I just found it real quick. Oh man, that steak sandwich looks so. I want one now. <laughs> but <laughs> but anyway. Uh, it was such a cool little town. Like it had a really good vibe to it. And it, you know, it was like, uh, but there was nothing else there, right? Like if you don't work for odd world, you're definitely moving somewhere else. Yeah. It was pretty much just businesses that catered to college students. Yeah. And a lot of, I found out later, um, like tax cheap businesses, like most of them weren't, they were businesses, but they were never open because it was like a tax dodge for people. Really? Yeah, so if you went off that main strip where we were, uh-huh. know, there was all these little tiny, like, it's a clothing shop, and it's never open, or it's, a, you know, it's a bookstore, and there's never any books in it. Um, they were they were sort of just tax shelter havens for Man. rich people with more money than sense. You may have just answered a question I've had my entire life, which is how things like antique stores and little businesses that never have anyone in them stay uh-huh. open. I, I've never understood this, but I did not know about that. So you literally may have just answered a lifelong question I've had. They're usually either tax dodges or mafia fronts. Yeah, that, <laughs> that I learned while working on The Godfather. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. All right. So, so yeah, you. I, oh, go ahead. Oh, as I said, so I really enjoyed San Luis Obispo as well. I mean, I did, I only lived in San Luis Obispo the first year, and then we got a place down in Pismo Beach. Yes, Pismo, man. I 
the uh, Splash Cafe. I, I, every time I think of Pismo, I have to mention this place because they have the best clam chowder in the world. My dad actually gets it shipped to Kentucky every year because he loves it so much. They like dry ice ship it. So with the with the sourdough bowl and everything. So wow, like shipping fresh seafood, that's taking a risk. It sure is. <laughs> I can't do it, but he does. <laughs> but man, it was delicious. And I try anytime I'm over that way, I try to go go by there, but it's it's rare these days, maybe every decade or so now. Yeah, I'm up in the Pacific Northwest now, so I never get down there. Are you in Seattle? Is that where you're... Yeah, about uh, 20 miles north. Okay. Nice. And I'm sure we'll get to that. <laughs> Hopefully. We got Oh, we only got an hour left. So <laughs> we're not going to get through everything, Eric. That's I'm I'm pretty sure about that already. That's okay. We've glossed over some of my terrible titles, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, we'll do a, another episode that's only the terrible stuff, and then we can just okay. just tell make, war make- stories. Make time for color a dinosaur. It's it's a gem. We can make the time right now if it's a gem. <laughs> well, we'd have to jump back to virgin. Okay. All right. All right. We'll we'll save that one because I feel like I feel like we're gonna have a lot of things to touch on on another episode. Yeah. So so you get you get to Oddworld, you and this was around the time that they kind of had a major changeover of people, right? Like they'd been working down one path with the game. And best I understand, there there was kind of a, a changing of of quite a few of the people on the team. They brought in a whole bunch of new people. Were you kind of there as that was happening, or like were you the beginning of the new people? How did that work out? I, as I understand it, I was the first wave of the next sacrificial group. Oh, wait, the next sacrificial group? Well, it seemed to be the way. So, like Oddworld would would go through designers a lot, right? So. Um, they would finish a title and then they would bring in new groups afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they had been wrestling with strangers wrath and they had really great technology demo, but not really a design. Yeah. Um, and what I found was it wasn't that they didn't have good ideas. It was that um, there was a little, there was hesitance. I don't want to call it intellectual dishonesty because that's not fair. Because they weren't they weren't trying to do this, but there was a big notion from Lauren and and uh, Sherry that we don't make shooters. We're not a shooter company. And I kept looking at them like this is a shooter. I don't know what to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very against making a shooter. And so lots of conversations with Lauren and talking about other ways we could handle it. And we, you know we sort of settled on this notion of live ammo. Um, using creatures and things like that and to soften it, but make it very weird, odd worldy. Um, and that went over a lot better, but I think that's where they got hung up was they had this great bit of technology that, uh, Charles Bloom had created in his team, um, beautiful art that Ryan had created in his group, but they couldn't get past this notion that they didn't want to make a shooter, but they were making a shooter. Yeah, I remember when I got there and I looked at the design doc that I was handed, which was already so many months out of date. There was something in there about like the the weapons had to have an arc to them. Like there was like a, like a, a the slingshot had an arc to it, and it was as I was reading, I'm like this this doesn't make any sense. Like like this is a uh, it reminded me of that. Remember that gorilla game or whatever it was called that was on like the the it was in DOS, I believe it was. It was just two gorillas on one side. You launched the bananas at each other. You'd set a trajectory and a um, you set a trajectory and a and a velocity. And you'd throw mm-hmm. a banana, 
and it would like arc in the air and try to hit the other gorilla. Like it was like this super simple thing. And that was the only thing I could think of every time I read this design. I'm like, this, this was never going to work. Like it needs to be a shooter. Right. And, and it was clear they were trying to make it not be violent or, you know, uh, that kind of game. And ultimately where we got to, I think was fantastic. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting because, you know, they had the same notion of like, well, we don't like to do violence, but we do violence. Like we will, we will stuff Madokans into a meat grinder and feed them to other Madokans. That was okay. <laughs> so it was finding the right kind of violence that would speak to the odd world sensibilities. And that's where the live ammo came from. Um, and that seemed to help. Yeah. So what but, was your, like, what was your kind of first major objective as you were there and kind of what was the state of the project overall? Cause when I came on, it was, I came in early Oh five or late Oh four. I can't remember for sure now. And it was at a point where, you know, I was replacing someone who had left and I, when I first got there, I was like, Oh, I wonder, am I even going to work on this game? It seems like it's pretty far along. Am I just going to help finish this up and then go on? But it was like, Oh no, we're going to here. You're going to do a whole new boss battle. You're going to run these, these two towns. Like it was, there was still plenty of stuff for me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it also felt like the game had changed a lot right before I had gotten there. Yeah. I think, um, the, the first goal was just to, to understand Lauren. So Lauren came from uh, movies and television. And so his, his mind is very, he's a, he's a brilliant storyteller. He's a brilliant character developer, but he thinks linearly, like TVs and movies. Yeah, yeah. So he had all these great ideas and gags um, to to create, but they were very difficult to translate into games. So that was the first goal was to go, okay, here's this creative director, and he's a mad scientist, and he's got all these ideas. How how do I take that and make it a, a reusable game? Because I'm not going to go and ask the engineers to spend four months on a feature that's going to be used once for one gag. Mm-hmm. It's just that's nuts and it's going to drive them crazy and there's going to be anger and blood and terrible things will happen. Um, so understanding Lauren and getting to the root of what he was looking for was sort of the first goal. And then trying to figure out how to pair the game back. Um, were, were you there when there were still the ninja toads and all that? I don't think so. So later in the game, once you had the boat and you were traveling up and down the river, yeah, you could recruit and find these little toads and they were super cool. I, I wish we could have kept it. Oh no, I don't remember really, this. <laughs> they, were like, they were like samurai, like they had tons of honor and they never really spoke, but they would follow you just religiously hmm. and they would do things for you and you could give rough commands and things like that. They were very cool, but it was just this huge feature. And I was like, we just, there's no time for this. So we we're looking for places to pair back and, taking some of Lauren's ideas that could be turned into reusable ideas, reusable features like dropping crates on stuff. So it's like, okay, we have this, we've made this activation creature that you can shoot. So now we're going to have lots of machinery that you can hit these things and it does a thing. So that Mm. became a reusable thing that it felt better to ask the engineers for. Because I'm like, okay, here's a basic set of functionality. You shoot with this particular bullet and hit these kinds of things and it does something for you. I can reuse that in lots of places. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big deal. It was trying to find those nuggets that can be reused a lot. Um, and it was fun, but it was, um, it was a lot of work because you know, everybody had, they get attached to stuff, right? You know, the artist had spent forever on the toads and 
you know, to tell them, man, we, I, I don't have time. I don't have a place to put them. That was rough. Yeah. That's, uh, that's always a rough thing because when people are, you know, putting their, just like with us design, when someone's putting a lot of work into an asset, you know, especially like something like that is it's the creation it's the animation it's the voice, all that. There's a lot that goes into something like that. And then to then for us to be like, it's, it's not a fit, which is the right call, right? Mm -hmm. It's the right call, but it doesn't make it feel good. And that can be a tough conversation. Yeah. And, and you know, you can't just go in and say, Hey, we're cutting this. Sorry. Right. So it has to be more, um, empathetic and subtle and I don't want to be, I don't want to sound underhanded, but you kind of have to lay the groundwork for those things yeah. so that it, not that it, I'm trying to manipulate people into thinking it was their idea to cut it or anything like that, but it, it goes over easier and better if you can sort of lay the logic out yep. and you know, you just don't call people in the room and say, Hey, that thing you were spending six months on not doing it. Yeah, man. I always tell <laughs> when I was working on red faction Armageddon, we had a vehicle artist and this, I will never forget this because as the project went on and we had to make cuts, we would scale back the number of missions, you know, on a kind of a, a regular basis across a year. And every time we would cut a mission, it had a vehicle that he had just finished. It happened like three or four times where eventually we would announce it and his hands would go up and he would <laughs> just be like, son of a bitch. <laughs> It, I felt so bad, uh, but man, sometimes you got to do that. Like it's cause it's the right thing overall. Like one person's lost work. You can't, you can't think about that in comparison to now 30 other people spending a month on something uh, going forward. Yeah. Right. Like it's, there's, you have to be a little detached from it, you know, and it's tough. Yeah. And that's again where the thick skin comes in. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that, but not everybody has that, and especially in the moment, right? Like that's, and especially if it's happening to you a lot. Yeah, well, I I had a um, I had a, uh, a CEO at a company that I worked for. We were making a, a MMO for kids, and it was like a like a big deal. Like we weren't taking on Blizzard, but we were going World of Warcraft, epic art and things like that. But it was for kids. Okay, and he would come in and you because. Know, CEOs always fancy themselves as designers. Um, everybody does. It's like the movie industry. Like everybody's yep. a writer and a director. So in the games industry, everybody's a designer. Um, and he would hit me with these things. He's like, I had, I was playing this game. I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> and <laughs> he's like, and I was playing, and this grenade went off, and the body flew past the window, and it was so funny and such a great moment. We need stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, first of all, we're a fantasy MMO, so no grenades. Um, and I, I was always wrestling with how to tell this person who, you know, writes the checks that, no, I'm not doing that. Um, so I would, you know, explain the, the technical issues like, well, look, we, we don't have physics because we're not going to resolve uh, physics simulations across the Internet, right? That's just not something we do in 2000-something. And it's all this extra work for, you know, very little payoff. And eventually I realized we both had a love of cooking. So I started expressing these things as analogies to cooking. So I said, look, so we're making chicken fettuccine. Our game is chicken fettuccine. And you keep telling me bananas are awesome. And I agree, bananas are totally awesome, but I'm not putting bananas in chicken fettuccine. It's not going to taste right. Right. If we make a banana split, I'm totally using your banana idea. But if you bring me something like green onions, I can make that work. I can make green onions work in chicken fettuccine. 
and it, it clicked at that point. So he didn't bring me as many things, but the things he brought me at, after that were much, much better. Man, um, I so have so never I, thought about it that way. And I'm going to use that analogy for the rest of my life. That it's, it's, it's a great way to think about it. It's perfect. I love that. It is one of those moments, just literally sitting in the elevator. I'm like, my God, I'm going to spend my entire day arguing with him about grenades. Um, and I needed something to, to drive it home of why we couldn't do this. And that, that worked. I lo- I'm writing this down, literally typing this right now because <laughs> I, I'm never going to forget this. I love it. <laughs> but that's, that's the same thing with like with Lauren or any, anybody that's, you know, visionary. You, you have to figure out what speaks to them. Yeah. And, um, a lot of it for, for Lauren was like, okay, you have this good idea. I don't want to spend six months of engineering time doing it. So what's the core? What are you really looking for? And can I make something out of it that's reusable? So what you're uh, saying, he had the idea and you had to figure out how what's the core of his idea. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. For okay. a lot of stuff. I mean, Lauren was still very high level. So there yeah. was all the nitty yeah. gritty. Like, you know, not to disparage Lauren, but I, 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 I considered him a like an artist more than anything. Like he, like I said, he was brilliant uh, at storytelling and character development and world creation, yep. but the mechanics of game design and sit, uh, systemic design, just, it wasn't his thing. It either didn't interest him or it was deeper than he wanted to go. Yeah. But that was what I had to do was to take these amazing high level things and then figure out what that really meant, what that really looked like in game. Yeah. That's uh that is a, such an important skill in a lot of ways, right? Because as designers, everyone fancies themselves a designer, as as you know, right? And and it is true that most people are able to kind of have that initial like, oh, this this is cool, right? Like, and it all starts with something sounds cool, right? But what we have to do is immediately, as soon as we hear an idea, we think through what is that going to mean two years from now. And how is that going to mesh with everything else that we're doing? And mm-hmm. and that that's what being a designer really is, right? Is yeah. is taking ideas that are cool and making them feasible and functional and fun within the scope of the thing that we're building. Like like that's that that's ultimately it. Or if it's a good enough idea, you can consider changing the other things, but that's rare, right? Like yeah. usually it's convincing someone that's a great idea in a silo here's here's what we could do with that to kind of make it fit with what we're trying to do yeah you're absolutely right the designer's job is not to have all the ideas or to hand down edicts from an ivory tower your job is to cultivate all the best ideas from all the other brilliant people around you that work as a whole right yeah. like the, the games that are brilliant that are greater than the sum of their parts some designer it wasn't one designer that had all of that, right? At least not anymore. I mean, maybe back in the day. Usually not. Yeah. People. <laughs> but nowadays it's like, my job is to set guardrails. Like this is the kind of game we're making. And this is the, this is our North star. This is where we're going. But, you know, tell me what you think would be cool. Like what should the player get to do? And, you know, especially it gets tough because you have to engage personalities that may not always want to be social like engineers like you have to engage engineers yeah um because they have brilliant ideas and often they can say can't do it that way but we could do this 
and it's super important to have that feedback in that that loop um, yeah. because then that's when the game becomes greater than it's some of its parts you just reminded me and i'm curious about your perspective on this we worked with charles bloom as the lead mm -hmm. engineer who i believe well, I'm certain is the 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 most brilliant game engineer I've ever worked with. Like that that is true for me. Like this guy was mm -hmm. he the, he thinks about things that I I don't I don't even know how to think about. Um what was it like working with him from your perspective as you as leads together and trying to kind of come together in something that, that to make this game into you know, more of you know, something that was feasible and, and doable and, and still innovative? Uh, it was tough because, like you said, he's, he was brilliant. I think he's an alien. I'm, I'm not convinced he was even human because not only would he <laughs> think of these things, but he could do it fast. Really fast. Um, and he, he had the team running smoothly, but it was tough working with him because he just, his personality type and mine didn't mesh at all. And I think he considered design expendable um, and I don't know if that was necessarily his view or if that's how he felt Oddworld treated designers. Mm. Um, it's just sort of expendable fodder for Lauren to chew through and move on. Well, that, that was a, a theme for a while, right? So <laughs> Yeah. Um, so he may have just been like, I don't have time to waste on this person that's going to you know, be fired in two years. So. Um, so it was difficult, but the end goal was we had to make a great game. And my job was to sort of convey Lauren's wants into something that was usable and reusable that meshed all together. Um, and so, I, you know, it, it worked, but it wasn't fun and it wasn't easy. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely like when you're working with someone that we, we had a lot of I always tell people that was the most talented team I've ever been on. Like every single person on that team was incredibly talented. And for me early in my career, I was like, I, I knew that I was at the bottom and I was just like, what can I learn from all these people? Well, you know, like it was, it was an incredible learning experience for me and a little overwhelming at times, but at the same time pushed me to be a much better designer. And I learned so much in a short amount of time. Um, but that was a lot of really good, um, really talented people, but a lot of also very um, dominant personalities, right? There was, there was a lot of them on that team. So a lot of things weren't easy uh, unless you got them on board, right? And that was the thing that, that as a designer we talk about, we have to always be able to do is get people to understand, here's what we're trying to do. Here's why we want to do it. You know, let, like, let's do, I, but I need your help. You know, like that, that kind of conversation. I had those a lot. Um, was that, was that kind of the thing that you had as well? Or was it much more of like a, like, like how, how was that dynamic just in general while we were finishing that up? Um, well, at Oddworld, it was, if you could incorporate everybody's sort of wants and hear them out, then I, they tended to appreciate it, even if we didn't end up going down a particular route. Because um, as you know, like design is equal parts cheerleading and therapist and all kinds of different um, job titles all meshed into one. So you, you, know, you learn the personalities, you learn the triggers, and you figure out how best to communicate to them um, things that make them excited. 
to get them on board. Um, and again, it's, it's asking the question, you know, what is the core? Because most people, when they're thinking about an idea and they're excited about it, they're, they're way up here when mm-hmm. they're thinking about it. Like yep. the end result, like I said, the grenade going off and the body flying, they, they're seeing this whole scene play out in their heads. So our job is then to pare that down. What is the core that they're actually excited about that they want? out of this and it's the same like when you're talking to people that aren't in the game industry right like you know i saw this thing and i'm super excited about it and understanding what they're really asking for yeah uh, is is tough but that's the, the big thing because if you try if you hear the the grenade went off and the body went flying and the glass shattered you're like crap that's there's a year's work right there um yeah then you're going to say no and you're going to get defensive but if you can pare it down to the simple bits and you're like, okay, that's doable. What, what they really want is ragdoll, right, with explosions. Yeah. Okay, maybe we can do that. We can license the ragdoll technology. There's there's a start. You know, and, and you start breaking it down. It makes it better. And even if you don't do it, you listen, and they feel heard, and that, that goes a long way too. And that's that's I, – I love that you said that because a lot of what we do is break things down to its simplest components, but also – and like you've mentioned with like, with like Lauren and others is understanding here's this big thing they're talking about. What is the actual, you know, the meat of it? What is the, mm-hmm. what's the experience they're looking for? And then how can we make that cheaply and, and do it in a way that kind of fits in what we're trying to do? That's, that's a really difficult thing for us as designers to do, but we have to be doing constantly. Yeah. Because every time they're going to shoot the messenger, right? So if I go to Charles Bloom or something and say, Hey, we need to do this thing. And you know, his mind is so quick. He's like, he's instantly figured out how long it's going to take, how many of his engineers, you know, all these things. And he's, he's going to be like, no, but if you come to him and go, Hey, how do you feel about ragdoll? Well, you know, I've done it before. I could probably figure it out again. It's like, okay, well, you know, Lauren liked to see ragdoll for this. You know, that wasn't really an issue for, uh, strangers rap, but you know, as an example, you know, breaking it down and bringing them a simple concept yeah, uh, goes a lot further than like, Hey, we need circumstances. And then Ryan is over in the art pit overhearing this going crap. Now we have to put in two story buildings into every level. <laughs> Everybody's freaking out. Oh man. Yeah. That's a uh, think. And as a designer, we have to understand enough of every other discipline to know what we're asking for. Right. Or, or what someone else is asking for a lot of times too. So like, it's a, uh, it's a lot of people don't understand how much of, of our job as a designer is like crowd control, you know, and like making sure that people understand what, what's going on. It's, it's supremely important. And that's a good takeaway for, for aspiring designers is don't, it's super important to have empathy for the other disciplines. It's even better if you can develop a secondary skill like ideally engineering yeah but if you're a great artist that helps too because you can have empathy for what you're asking for and what they're going to have to go through to to create that thing yeah um and it lets you approach the the problem in a a different way and i i don't want people to think oh i need to be a programmer and a designer because then you get into this catch-22 of you were acutely aware of just how complicated the thing you're asking for is, and you may not ask for it at that point. But yeah, the, yeah. The engineer you're talking to is probably way better than you anyway, in terms of engineering, and they might find a better way to do it or a quicker way to do it. So you should be asking. Yeah. But having empathy for the other disciplines is super important. 
it makes you more likable and easier to work with. That that is it. I so my my education was was heavily in programming. So, but it was a mix of of programming and design. And the thing that I always that I always appreciated about that is even though I knew early I'm not going to be a programmer, I knew mm-hmm. enough about it to be able to have intelligent conversations with programmers. To where they cuz you and I both know a lot of times a programmer will be like that's not feasible or we can't do that or you know those the, there's very much there's often a a kind of a wall that's like you don't understand what you're asking for and yeah. but I did know what I was asking for and that always I felt for me personally gave me kind of an of an edge where I was like I understand what I'm asking for and here's how I know and here's a thought that I had vaguely on how this could work and then have a conversation about it instead of immediately getting that vibe of like, this guy doesn't, he's asking for the world. Like he doesn't understand what he's asking for. And I got all this other stuff going on. And yeah. Yeah. And nowadays too, like if you have that secondary skill and you can prototype your idea, man, that's, that goes so such a long way. Like if you can make a really crude thing, it's so much easier to point and grunt at something. Go, mm-hmm. I want that. Let's make it nice. <laughs> That's easy compared to like going to the whiteboard for hours and drawing out your system or God forbid, writing a thousand page screed on why the system is important. Yeah. Nobody wants to read that. But if you yeah. can prototype it and show an engineer that I want this, but I want it pretty and nice and not buggy. That's so much easier. And that's, that's, um, I always point to the Joe mama battle that I worked on because I created two entirely unique mechanics for that. Right. I did the pile driver and I did the electric wire and I just, mm-hmm. I just did it right. Like we had conversations about it. You know, I was like, here we, you know, we had a lot of conversations. What's the boss battle going to be? What's the theme, all that kind of stuff. But like the gameplay, I, I went and did it in a basic form and then got people to be like, oh yeah, we can do that. You know, like we just need an effect for this, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And doing it and handing it to someone and then being like, oh, I see what we're trying to do here. Yeah, 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 we can do this. Like that's way easier sell, like way easier. Well, not to jump back in time, but on Red Alert, I made this mission where you were rescuing. So in this one, you had these commandos, right? And Tanya was the commando for Red Alert. And we had this mission where you were springing her out of Soviet prison. And there was this whole spy thing where you had to run the run into the building. You can't have that. It's too noisy. Um, <laughs> and I, I had made a mistake of spawning her character underneath the building before I blew up the building. But in the code, what would happen is if a unit wanted to, to, to path somewhere that they couldn't get to, but the obstruction was an enemy structure or unit, they would shoot at it to get it out of the way. So she spawned in, couldn't get where she wanted to go because she was literally underneath the building and there was no way to path out from underneath the building. So she starts shooting at it. So what it sounded like was she got (laughs) out of her cell and she's shooting up the guards. And I'm like, this is great. So I scripted the whole thing out and I played lots of, you know, guards dying sounds and her laughing and then blow up the building and she comes running out. Well, Joe Bostic comes to me and says, this is really cool. This is really interesting. How did you do that? And I showed him that I was, you know, tricking, I was using the, a problem with the AI, with the pathing to do it. He's like, oh, no, don't do that. Let me give you something that will work properly. Uh, so at first he was like, this is great. And I showed him how I, how I did it. He's like, no, don't do yeah. that. <laughs> so I, I have a story like that, too. When I was working on the Simpsons game, we had uh, we had to use the renderware engine 
is like a a test. Yeah, dude, <laughs> Renderware Studio, <laughs> and uh, this was right after EA bought it, and so like they had it, and like it was from Criterion, and we were tinkering with it, and we were just like prototyping things, and we were building this mission where I had this giant drill, as in like the the blades were big enough that you could walk around them, you know, like that kind of size of drill, like take up the whole room type thing. And the way that I got it to prototype was I made it a door. So it would just like move by open and close, right? Which was not at all what it was supposed to do eventually, but it got enough of the point across that people could experience it and be like, oh, I, I see, like this is going to rotate. I'm going to do this thing. But I remember when this engineer Lex looked at it, he goes, oh, doors aren't supposed to do that. I was like, no, no, I know. I know. Like this is not the... <laughs> I'm just trying to get the point across. Like he's like, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. I'm like, I know. Like, <laughs> it's it's fun as designers. Our job is to sort of break things elegantly. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> contrary to belief, popular belief, designers actually like to be put in a box. Right? Yeah. Like we like constraints. Yes. We may not yes. admit it consciously, but it makes us do better work. I man, I'm so glad you said that because I tell people that all the time. I'm like, to me, design is working within constraint because we, I feel like you're much better at when you have limits. Now you're thinking about how do I work within the limits? Whereas when you're, when we're early, you know, on a blue sky on a project, we're sitting on the beach talking about what's this game going to be. It could be anything, but that's not where the work is. The work is when you're like, okay, we're making this thing. I have this idea how do I make this into something that's interesting within the limits that I have? And the box continues to, to shrink, you know, like you talked about before, like with, you know, you've got 2000 kilometers and it's down to a thousand or what, it, like that it continues to, to, to come down. And you're like, I've got to make this idea work within this sometimes continually shrinking box. That's where the challenge is. And that's where it's fun. Yeah. And that's where we, induce panic attacks into the engineers, but that's what <laughs> generates the best, the best experience. Yeah. So wait, we got a question in the chat. I want to ask you real quick, cause we don't, we don't talk about this enough, which is how often do you take into account the sound design for the ideas that you come up with with considering like how to incorporate them? Not nearly often enough. And I'm actually a musician. I love sound. Uh, I didn't know you were a musician. I don't do it enough. Hmm? I, di I didn't know you were a musician. Yeah, I've been playing, well, I, I played guitar for a long time, and then in high school, I started playing water polo, and I was a goalie, and I broke all of my fingers many, many times. I knew that. <laughs> so I, couldn't form, I couldn't form chords anymore. Oh. Um, so I transitioned over to synthesizers, because I liked programming, and this was very electronic and everything. So, um, yeah, I've been into you know sound and music since before high school. Okay. Long before high school. Um. I try to give it a lot of, of thought and attention and I still don't give it enough. Not remotely. I I'm the same way. I, and, and this was true at Volition as well, where I was there, you know, I was there for eight years and we, I remember every project, the audio team was the one that got to come in last. They're the ones that were crunching the most at the end. It's, it's not considered early enough. And we, we need to get better at that. Like we, we really do because it's such an integral part of what we're doing. I'm not sure the right way to do that yet. You know, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I just spent some time on with the 
on the Forza franchise, and Microsoft is huge into accessibility, and sound is a big part of that. And so it's it's getting there, but I think maybe through different um, different avenues. Um, unless you work someplace like I worked at LucasArts for a while, and um, when was that? That was yeah, that was after our world. We haven't gotten there yet. Um, sound is such a big deal in Star Wars yeah. that it was always front and center anyway, because with Star Wars, it's cheating, right? You just have to have those first few um, measures yeah. of the music, and that's it. <laughs> Everybody knows exactly what the game is. You don't have to do any work as a designer. You can have a black screen, and bah, 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 and you're like, okay, I know what the game is. Good, done. Yeah. I don't have to convince anybody <laughs> of anything. Um, so in that case, it was very front and center because they already had this huge background and mythology behind the sounds and they're so iconic you didn't it wasn't it was almost not work and they already had all their sounds laid out this is like okay what's the game we'll just plug all these things in yeah uh, but I, I hope it becomes more of a, a thought sooner rather than later same with qa like i love having qa involved in the game from the start yeah i'm with you i wonder how much of of the conversation we're having right now is our our experience in the past, right? Like that's, that's the way it's been for a very long time for us. I, I wonder if, if newer teams and newer people in the industry are doing better. I don't know the answer to that. You know what I mean? Like, but, but we're doing things like, you know, UX is, is brought in much sooner now, which is a thing we didn't even talk or know about when we were designing games, even 10 years ago. Um, so I feel like, I hope that the, I'm I'm definitely seeing a much more a bigger move toward integrating all the teams sooner and getting everybody on the same page, which is great. But even the aspiration of that is difficult, right? Because you know we 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 have to focus on the things we can focus on. It gets difficult to think about down the road as far as like that that work is going to come later. It's it's kind of hard to consider that at times. It is, and they're at a slight disadvantage too because. If you bring them in too early, they end up doing a lot of work that gets thrown out. Yeah. Um, UI UX is the same way, right? Like I haven't figured out this system yet, so how can I possibly tell you what buttons there's going to be and what the flow is going to look yeah. like, and uh, you know whether that character is even going to be here? So why would I have the NG- the sound designer spend a ton of time on like voice development for something that gets cut? So it's 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 going to be tough. Um, and I, I know we're sitting here, you know, back in my day, right. <laughs> um, get off my lawn. That's right. I think it is getting better um, because the, the industry is, it it's getting more mechanical, right? Like it's getting more like the movies. People know how to do it in the steps. So they're refining them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're still terrible at it, like compared to movies because, you know, movies, you don't have to reinvent the camera every time. And with games, we're always rewriting everything from scratch every time for some silly reason. We need but, to get better at that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's part the industry and part just our general arrogance that we can always do it better. Yeah. Like, I haven't known an engineer that wants to keep their code from the last game. None of them. I agree. They're always like, I can do this better. <laughs> Especially if it's somebody else's code. Like, no, throw it out. Man, I you are right. I Every time. that That is a general belief I have about programmers is that they're like, somebody else did it. Nope. I can do it better. Mm -hmm. I've, it happens every time, every time. 
And I get it. And everybody, you should feel that way, right? Like you should feel that way, but it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And like, we got to figure out the right way to kind of temper that a bit, I think. And I, and I understand it. Like when I'm parsing through somebody's code and I'm like, I don't know what the hell this is supposed to be doing. And they yeah. haven't commented it well or anything like that. I get the impulse and the desire to toss it and start over. But yeah, I mean, there was a sunk cost, you know, we paid that person for two years you know, to write all that stuff. And now we're going to throw it out. Now I'm going to pay you for two years to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's tough. So we got an interesting question in the chat talking about audio. Would it be better to have them join early and throw out their work or come in later as an afterthought and play catch up? Like the, it feels like the, neither one is a great answer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what's worked best for me is bringing them in early um, so that they can hear it all and contribute to it. Cause again, I, I like to cultivate and harvest ideas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, especially from other perspectives. Um, so they get time to think about it and play around and experiment with different effects and how they might handle a character and how they might mix things. But I'm just going to sit there on a microphone and yell into it. And that's going to sit in the game for six months. Until right. We're sure we keep it. And yeah. That seems to work pretty well because nobody cares if they take out all my crap and I don't care. Um, but the audio designer or engineer is going to spend a ton of time and make it perfect because that's their job. And that's a lot of wasted time where I could spend five minutes screaming into a microphone and then toss it six months later. Yeah. I, I feel like we don't do enough of that these days, which is like the clearly temp throwaway audio stuff like we there's enough assets out there that we can grab something that's probably good enough that we 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 tend to go down that route now i think instead of being like let me just like let me do this terribly because it's going to get the point across and we know we need to replace it because when you hear it you're going to be like that's not going to land right like we definitely need to get rid of that thing yeah, I wonder what the audio equivalent of the pink texture is. Right. Like, you know the pink texture <laughs> yep. that was on the non-textured object? <laughs> that is crucial. <laughs> I don't know what the audio equivalent of that is. <laughs> All right, we got another question in chat here. It says, when an idea comes in from someone on the team, do you think about how to do the, that thing or do or to do it better than someone else has that's done something similar? Do you care about how others have done similar things? And I think what we're talking about here now is competitive analysis a bit, right? Yeah. Like I, our, our industry is, is rife with, uh, appropriation industry synchronicity. I don't know whether it's like, Oh, we all thought of the same thing at the same time, or we're just stealing each other's ideas. Um, and not to just, this is not a disparity. I mean, Blizzard literally made, a, a mint taking other people's games that they enjoyed mm-hmm. and doing them better. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's okay. I, I don't quite honestly have a problem with that. If somebody's done something really well, I mean, I'm not going to ape it identically um, because then I'm going to get sued. But, you know, if somebody's done something, some core really, really well, and I think it's fun, um, I'm I'm going to I'm going to take that and I'm going to yeah. look at it and it's even helpful in communications. I remember even like we talked about Charles when we were talking about aiming and aiming assist and magnetics of like how to slow the cursor down the the, the reticle as it passes over a valid target. Mm-hmm. Um we both realized we were talking about Halo. 
So uh, it would have been so much easier to just go, hey, let's knock off Halo's targeting. Right. And then we just dissect it, and then that's the end. And now it works like Halo because Halo felt great. Yeah. Um, that's okay. I don't. I don't have a problem with that at all. I'm with you. And uh, it was just said in the chat, don't reinvent the wheel. That's literally exactly what I always say. If something works somewhere else and we can recreate it and it, and it's right. And that's the thing. It has to be right for your game, right? There's Mm -hmm. the thing that I get really annoyed with is when someone on the team is like, Hey, this other game is doing this cool thing. We should do that. And I'm like, that's nothing like, that's nothing like what we're trying to do. I get that. It's cool. I get that. It could fit if we really wanted it to, but it's not what we're trying to do and it doesn't enhance our product. Right. But when someone's like, Hey, we've got this control scheme using this series of buttons or whatever, like it's becoming the norm, then now it's the norm. Like, and I think every developer kind of feels that way. Yeah. I mean, that was the rise of WASD, right? Yep. You had, you had a control scheme for a game that was ubiquitous. Like when doom came out and all that, why why not why would you reinvent that like everybody gets it everybody understands it. you don't have to explain it you don't need a tutorial it's where your hands go automatically now when you start playing a first person shooter why would you change that yeah absolutely all you're going to do is confuse people at that point like we we want standards we want comfort we want recognizability whenever we go into something that was part of as i recall again you know history and memory is hazy but when we changed Command and Conquer from Fortresses of Stone, which was more of a fantasy thing, a lot of it was trying to explain the differences between elves. Like Europe, Scandinavia in particular, has a very different elf. Like an elf there is very ugly and nasty and mean. Oh. In the U.S., elves are very Tolkien, right? They're mm-hmm. proper and beautiful and, and all that. And we were going to have to explain all that. Yeah. So then it was like, well, what does everybody get? Everybody gets tanks. People know what a tank is. Right. Have to explain. Um, and that was part of the reasoning for switching over. So we got a question in the chat I have to ask you because it made me chuckle. How often do you have dreams or nightmares about the game you're working on? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's during all my waking hours more than anything, right? Like, <laughs> Waking dreams. <laughs> well, I think the designer brain too. Like, if I were to analyze my dreams during difficult projects, I'm sure there's a lot of representations of what's going on in my day to day life, morphed into the horrific imagery in my dreams. Um, but it never, I never make really the connection. It's it's probably more that I'm not sleeping, because you know I'm at work and under my sleeping under my desk when I have time. <laughs> man luckily i don't have to do that much anymore (laughs) oh yeah no i'm too old for that yeah that's another takeaway yeah make time for yourself you don't want to look like me in 30 years (laughs) man i'm with you there i guess as simple as it sounds right the company unless you're very very lucky to get into a small company with a lot of people that really like each other the company doesn't care about you we're all replaceable and expendable so Follow your dreams, but make time for yourself because they're they're gonna grind you down if if they can. You you have to you have to care about your self preservation, right? Yep. And some companies are better than others, and I feel like overall companies are getting better at this, right? Like as far as being more cognizant of work life balance and things like that. At least they appear to be. They say they are, right? 
but you have to be someone who's like, I'm, I'm going to take my PTO, right? Like I'm going to make sure that I, that I do the things I need to do to stay healthy. And cause it's like, especially like when we started doing this there, there, no, nobody cared at all. Right. Like it was run you into the ground and whatever. Cause my first couple of jobs are that way for sure. I feel like it's getting a little better, but still you have to be an advocate for yourself all the time. Yeah. You absolutely do. And I'll get a little too personal here, but it took cancer to get me to change my priorities. I, so I was going to ask about that. Um, can, so how, when, can you just give us a little bit of an insight into, into what that was like for you? Well, I mean, you mean the, the process of, well, just like, treatment? like, well, like where, like, uh, what you mentioned, like it took that for you to, to kind of change your, your lifestyle. Like what was, what, what was that experience like for you? terrifying to me (laughs) what's that it's terrifying to me you know it is and you know there there's a lot of reasons that you know people end up with cancer but you can hasten it it's onset by just constantly being run down and and not keeping yourself healthy um and when you're in a, a highly competitive field there's this desire to always work and always be thinking and as as designers in particular, and this is true of everybody in the industry, we're, we are always working. Even if we're at home, the brain is still yep. chewing on ideas and problems. And like somebody asked about the dreams, I'm sure I solved many problems either in the shower or at night in my dreams. Yep. Um, <laughs> and if you're not careful, you will run yourself down to the point where all sorts of, of bad things can take hold and take root. Um, and literally it took, getting close to dying for me to reevaluate what was important. Man, that's, uh, that's, that's powerful. Like that's, uh, that is a great lesson. And, and you know, it, it, we, it's a delicate balance, right? Because early in careers, we say, Hey, do what you need to do. Get your foot in the door, you know, be that guy that's, that's dependable. And then, but after not too long, you got to, you got to start figuring out how to balance that better, right? Like you got to yeah. figure out how to like take care of yourself and make sure that you are also being served in this and that you're not running yourself into the ground. Yeah. Don't miss those birthdays. You know, don't, don't do that stuff. Make yeah. sure that you get to experience life. Um, I, I was fortunate because you know, we'd been smart with our money. My wife's killing it in her career. So I don't have to work. I, I work because I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, I spend most of my time actually helping her with her career. And then I take on contracts now when there's a fun team or a fun project that comes up. Um, oh, oh no, I lost you. Are you back? Almost. Let me see here. I'm not sure what <laughs> keeps happening. I hear you. Where's the call? I figured it out last time. I'll figure it out this time. <laughs> I go. love that it was like in this super intense moment. <laughs> You're like, yeah. take care of yourself, click. Like, <laughs> Nothing like technology to screw up a good moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what forced me to reevaluate what was important was getting so sick. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, I couldn't eat. I couldn't breathe without being in intense pain. Oh, man. Um, it was easily the most horrific thing I've ever been through in my entire life. What, so, um, don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely don't do that. Like, what was that? Um, what was that time period like for you? Cause you're, you're obviously much better now. And, and I, yeah. I, 
and I think at this point you've you're you're cancer free, correct? Three years, yeah. Okay, awesome. So like like how long like how long did you deal with that? Well, I didn't know it was happening. That, that that's the worst part about cancer is it's just so. Can I cuss on this channel? Absolutely, yeah. It's fucking insidious, right? Yeah. Um, you don't know it's there. It doesn't cause pain. Most cancers don't. Uh, I woke up one morning with a lump on my neck that looked like I'd swallowed an egg sideways. Oh. Literally, just one morning, just drunk. Wow. Like, okay, that's not right. Um, so you start going to doctors, and they start sticking things in you to figure out what's wrong, and operations and various things. And they're like, oh, sorry, cancer. Um, so then you have to figure out like what's the best course of action. And for me, it was chemo and radiation because they couldn't get at the tumor where it was. Um, so, you know, that's, that's brutal. And I, I couldn't speak for three or four months. I couldn't eat or drink. Um, it, everything was incredibly painful. Man. Uh, so I, I really don't recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> of all the things you should not do, don't get cancer. Like, <laughs> well, it's so funny. I had I had quit drinking. I was exercising. I'd lost probably fifty pounds. I was doing really well, and then I got sicker than I'd ever been. <laughs> like wait. I was healthier when I was drinking and fat. So wait, this um, happened after you had lost weight and were getting healthier? Yeah. So oh wow. This, I'm still very heavy, but this is about hundred and thirty pounds lighter than I was. Wow. Pre cancer. Um. So all that stuff catches up to you. And again, like in high school, I played water polo. I was fit. I was in good shape. And then I started making video games and I just burped. It's a super um, sedentary industry. <laughs> it'll get you. Yeah. Man. Well, obviously super happy that you've recovered from that. And, uh, and that's, that, that is great. Um, but man, there's, there's, there's a huge, a huge lesson to share there. Right. And, you know, you've already mentioned it, but it's like, we, you got to take care of yourself. You got to make sure like, we're going to have those moments. We're always going to have those moments where we've got to work extra. We've got to put, burn the midnight oil. We've got to get this thing done. That that's fine. That's okay. We get that, but it's got to be in moderation. You've got to make sure that even in those times that you're eating, okay, that you're getting some exercise, that sunlight is something that you experience you know, like we, we, we've got to make sure, and and it's on us because like you said, no one's going to make us do that. You know, like, mm-hmm. and if, as, as far as the company is concerned, the more time we're working on the project, the better it is for them. Right. And yeah. so we have to make sure we're an advocate for ourselves all the time. It's, it's, I, it's so easy to say, and I feel bad saying it like, you know, don't do as I did. Um, but it, it is, it's, it's critical and I, I'll, I'll be the poster boy for it if it, if it helps anybody, because you don't, you don't want to go through it. I do not want to go through it <laughs> and I hope nobody else does either, but man, that's a uh, man. I, I appreciate you sharing that because that's, that is, uh, you're right. That's, it's a great lesson and hearing it from someone that has gone through it. And that's uh that's very powerful. And I appreciate that. Thanks. So, all right, so we are actually out of time. Um, Let's, so we can end on a depressing note. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, all right, guys, come back next time to hear the. <laughs> but, <laughs> to hear but, how he died. Yeah. Oh no, <laughs> no, we don't want to ever hear about that. Uh, but I mean, we we clearly have at least another episode worth of stuff to talk about, right? So, 
I, if you'd be up for it, I'd love for us to, to schedule another time for you to come back on and us to continue the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we still haven't covered, you know, Star Wars and I don't know, what else did I do? A lot of random crap. Yeah. Well, we, and also, I want to make sure we talk about kind of the end of Oddworld. And, you know, because like we, there was a, a whole time there where things were kind of crazy. And there's a bit of like, I want to make sure I remember some of that stuff right, too. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, man, we've got, we still got a lot to cover. So let, let's find a time to do that. And, but for now, dude, I really appreciate you coming on and joining us. Um, it's been super insightful. You have so much experience and wisdom to share, and I appreciate you coming to do that. I, I appreciate being asked. I, I love this. I love talking about games. And I, like I told you before, I, I swear sometimes I take interviews for jobs I don't want just so I can talk to people about games. <laughs> hey, that's it's really, it's a sickness. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you have to love it to do it for 31 years, right? So, so I totally get that part of it. As I understand it, the average burnout time is 12 years. Most people, if you make it past 12, you're in it for life. Wow. We're screwed, man. You at 31 and me at 20, we're we're screwed. This is what we do now. So we're over. (laughs) All right, man. I'm going to jump off here and say my goodbyes. Thank you again. And uh, we'll talk about finding another time. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right. Talk to you later, buddy. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, you can join us live every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv forward slash Jameson Doral. Every Tuesday, I'll have a new podcast episode ready for you. Be sure to follow me on all of my social media using the links in the show notes and join the Dev Team Discord to be a part of the conversation anytime. We'll see you soon.